Matsky, I hope I said that right. That's correct, yes. Correct. Uh, writer for Small Town Monsters. Uh, Monstropolis co-host. Uh, author of Making Monsters. And Monsterland. Uh, oh, podcast yes. host with, with you mm. and your, your son Andy. Is that right? Yes, that's yeah, correct. Which, um, yeah. It's great. I just, I mean, I absolutely love, I love the tagline. Father, son, monster fun. Yes. Um as somebody who's completely, completely addicted to alliteration, uh, <laughs> it's perfect for me. As soon as I saw it, I was like, okay, great. That's exactly what I need. That, that, oh, says, that does everything that I require. <laughs> um, but what I was most interested in uh, looking at your, your bio, actually, is that you are a, a pastor of uh, a Lutheran yeah. church. Correct. Is that right? Yes. But how long have you now? This is interesting to me because I went to the uh, I I studied theology and Hellenistic Greek in university. Uh, finished nineteen years ago to mm -hmm. be a Baptist pastor. Oh my goodness! Mm, only I didn't become one. Uh, okay. Just at the time, as a young man, I thought I preferred and a, a traveling, you know, touring musician. I mm -hmm. thought I'd prefer to be a, a private hypocrite instead of a public one. So, <laughs> <laughs> and my pastor at the time agreed that that was a good move. Yeah. Maybe I should <laughs> give it some time. <laughs> good advice. Yeah, that so, is good advice. Yeah. So it, there's a funny link. So just tell us, I'd, I'd love to know about the pastor thing first. You know, tell us, oh, how, how did that happen? Well, it was uh, a very long road. I mean, I look back now and it, it's, it's unbelievable in a way to think that I've been serving in full-time ministry for 22 years. I was just doing the math today. And uh, before that, I grew up as a pastor's son. Okay. And uh, my, my father was a teacher in the Lutheran school system mm -hmm. here in the U.S. And it was during his time kind of serving as both a, a classroom teacher and the administrator of a school. He worked very closely with a, another pastor, and it was in that time especially that he felt a calling to ministry. So I was old enough at that point to observe him at each stage, sort of wrestling with a calling, and then finally making the, the steps that were necessary, which included going, you know, uh, physically to a seminary and learning there in sort of an alternate route fashion. Uh, long story short, I was able to kind of track that whole process. And then when I was in about my third grade year, he became an ordained pastor. And okay. ever, ever since then, he served full time. So I grew up with that uh, sort of that dichotomy of being in a pastor's household and thinking of my career in terms of anything but that. <laughs> Not in an adversarial way, but no. just in the way that a young person is yeah. thinking, I've got to try all these other things on. And yeah. I, I did. And ultimately, it was during my undergraduate years, um, I, was, I was going for on an educational track, let's just say it that way. And a number of things happened that it was never there was never a road to Damascus experience for me per se, but it was more like everything else gradually falling by the wayside. And it the icing on the cake was a good friend of mine went 
did have sort of a road to Damascus experience where all of a sudden he was convinced that he was supposed to be a pastor. Okay. And I was just sitting there and talking to him and uh, kind of being close to someone who was that certain that that's what they were supposed to be doing. That got me thinking. And it, it was that that wasn't a fast process either, but it was one small step on a larger journey that ultimately resulted in me visiting a seminary campus and uh, feeling like this is everything else had sort of dropped off and this was the last element standing. And here I am 22 years later having, you know, served in in a church. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the, the longevity of that is, you know, you you just can't ever assume that you'll be doing this for (laughs) decades and decades. I mean, but at the same time, clearly it was the right move. Mm-hmm. Uh, 22 years, I think, um, after 22 years in a certain position, you're either very, very stuck or very, very stubborn if you don't like it or you really mm-hmm. like it. Yes. And um, that's, it doesn't seem that you don't like it, so that's good. No. I mean, I, I loved it. I love the whole religion thing, even now, apart from cryptozoology books and mainly books about politics and psychology and things, my shelf is full of books on theological study. I'm, uh, I converted when I was 16. I'm, uh, I guess, Baptist by denomination, but I just mm. call myself a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife is an Israeli Jew. You know, we've got, we've got two children. They do uh, uh, Shabbat prayers on Friday and light candles. And on Sunday, I read to them from the Bible. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you think they were about? They probably grow up and become like uh, Buddhists <laughs> or something, you know, <laughs> just to get away from the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My. They said, no, 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 we've got both of those sides and let's, let's go a different route. Um, mm-hmm. But it's an odd thing. I always loved to, to study the archaeology, the history. Of course, I've been to Israel every year for the last 11 years and uh, to all of the historical sites and some of the less famous ones too. And it, it's very fascinating um, and very interesting. But I, I know from studying it, that it's a hard road. I remember, remember my pastor we had a congregation of 500 people, I think. It was very, very popular. Mm-hmm. A great orator and um, a, a great preacher and obviously you know, completely dedicated, as most pastors are. But he's, I, he just looked worn out all the time, dragged into mm-hmm. every person's house. Somebody has a crisis. And you have the deacons and everybody else. And mm-hmm. Somebody has a crisis. Somebody has a death. Somebody has something that's the most important for them at that time. And there you are. I need Pastor Mark, right? Yes. I yeah. need, it can't be anybody else. It can't be the deacons. It mm-hmm. can't be the assistants. Mm-hmm. It has to be you. And um, I just thought to myself at the time, I don't think I want this. I think I'm more interested in the, uh, the what's behind the scenes of the religious study. Mm-hmm. S- similarly for cryptozoology, actually, my interest is primarily in why people like it these days. Mm-hmm. What yes. psychological reasons draw them to that? And as a link, in my questioning, actually, it's strange. One might think for a pastor to be interested in um, you know, the, the Bell Witch and UFOs <laughs> and yes. uh, the Bray Road Beast and all of these mm-hmm. great documentaries that the small time monsters team have produced. So, so what's the crossover? I mean, one, 
how did you get into that stuff or were you always and two do you have to justify it to the congregation at any point hmm. yeah well number one is easy that's uh always <laughs> yeah. i i was uh kind of a an early reader um part of that is by design my dad was going through a a master's degree program in in early childhood education and reading and so i was somewhat of an experiment in reading and that was my entree into all of these subjects i i recall uh, seeing a tv show in search of uh Mm. featuring bigfoot and the next thing my next impulse and this was at age four or five Mm. is to go to the library and see if they had bigfoot books and at that time this was um mid-70s mid to late 70s uh, there, there were in uh american libraries and children's literature there was a cresting wave of unexplained phenomena books mm. so there was no shortage of those and so uh all that is to say from the time that i could really read for comprehension this is these have been topics that i've been interested in and my parents to their eternal credit um always encouraged me to just investigate what I was interested in. And uh, they were just happy that I was got that much enjoyment out of uh-huh. reading and writing and drawing and all those things that young ones tend to do when they're interested in these subjects. Um, and, and, you know, that, that ebbed and flowed, of course, at various times in my life. But, you know, it really came back around very strongly after my son was born and started to become of that same age where, you know, you just want to guide him to various avenues of interest. Yeah. And uh, this was definitely one. And he he started to pick up some of those things for himself and have a genuine interest in them. And one thing led to another, and we found ourselves meeting people at Bigfoot conferences and things like that. Uh-huh. And that that's um, a few steps into how I ended up with small town monsters and on hosting podcasts and things of that nature. What's really been interesting for you uh, for question number two is in my, at my current congregation that the reception for my participation in all things cryptid and unusual has been very, very positive to the degree that we've done local library talks uh, Seth and myself and and Andy as well, and I've had four or five people from my congregation sitting in the front row, eating it up, which I, <laughs> which I never really expected to have happen. What what's really been eye opening for me is, you know, we tend to here in Northeast Ohio um, because we're all most of us who are directly involved in the the making of the films. Or live in this area, and there's a wonderful old um, movie theater called the Canton Palace Theater in Canton, mm-hmm. downtown. Grand old movie palace, you know, like so many of those have fallen into disrepair, but this one has survived. And after screening our latest films, we'll generally open things up for a, a question and answer session. And without fail, somebody in the crowd will single me out and ask me, how do you explain this? <laughs> you know, yeah. you're, a, you're a full-time pastor and you're interested yeah. in all these things. And, 
and how do you reconcile the two? And that's I've in a in a certain sense I I've kind of settled on the answering that question is one of the reasons why like in a meta sense mm-hmm. I'm doing this I think is to just put little seeds of thought in people's minds um, sure. because the way I end up answering that question in a general way is that uh, the question the question itself suggests a lot to me it suggests that people perceive mm-hmm. that on on one end of the spectrum is biblical faith on the other end is the unexplained and the mysterious and that the two have nothing to do with one another and it makes me wonder you know have you read the bible <laughs> because uh there's there's so much in scripture that uh, you know out of, yeah out of context you would just describe this as a supernatural event and and any sort of orthodox historical faith at all at a certain point has to has to rest on mystery on things that we cannot explain yeah. and that they must be received by faith of one type or another so um it's always interesting to me to re- to get that question and to offer that as a res- as a type of response uh because to me what i end up saying to that question is that it, mm-hmm. it suggests that there's two things in opposition to one another that i don't i don't see that they're opposed i think or, or at least opposed in the way that people think they may be and um I, and that that goes both on a, a grand sort of theological level, but also uh-huh. on a personal level. Like in my life has just been those two things sitting right next to one another always. Is, so they've always fitted together. Yes. Yeah. No, I understand that. I mean, I, I suppose, and, and you answered the question perfectly, uh, I suppose one would say that you know, interest, or I would say interest is not the same as endorsement. Hmm. And, and so that would be my view for myself on, on some of the, the elements of these things that I, I like to investigate. And the other thing as well, I think, is that I get thrown a lot of faulty theology by people. This Nephilim yes. style theology, that mm-hmm. I call it Nephilim uh, theory. And um, yeah, there's a lot of this, uh, this is demonic, that's demonic. And I always like to say, well, or oh, this is supernatural, spiritual. I, I normally like to say, well, let's. And let's go through every single step we can go through first to see if it's an animal. Because you know, if the thing is spotted in the woods and has been seen hunting deer and needs cover and water and all the rest of it, it doesn't really seem like these are you know, prerequisite to a ghostly life. You know, it seems a very mm-hmm. animalistic life. So let's mm-hmm. try to see if we can find it. And if it seems to possess abilities we can't explain, well, remember, an octopus can camouflage itself. And in shape and color, uh, mm-hmm. so a chameleon, and you know, maybe some of these creatures have other similar abilities that we would find fantastical two, three thousand years ago. Should we have seen the squid or the octopus mm. uh, change its color? So that's my view. Let's look to see if they're animals first, and if we can't find any backing for that whatsoever, then we can go to the, the spiritual realm or the paranormal realm, I suppose. But the difficulty for me with investigating that is, well, if it's paranormal and it's non-corporeal, so where do we go from here mm-hmm. as far as right. evidence goes? Isn't that the problem that all religion has anyway? Um, 
it's this non-corporeal uh, faith-like aspect that that's involved in, in believing in it. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Um, now you guys have investigated some great things. I, I was actually looking. Is it twelve documentaries so far and four coming up uh, <laughs> yeah. for release? So right. just looking through the, the whole list, and I've seen some of them. Some of them I haven't seen. Um, but just looking at what's coming out of the Bell Witch, the Mothman Legacy, On the Trail of UFOs, and you're doing another On the Trail of Bigfoot right now. Is that right? Correct. And then before that, there's 12 <laughs> yeah. documentaries since since 2015. And I think this is, as an independent company, as people have crowdfunded primarily everything they've done so far, it's very astonishing. I think it should be encouraging to most um, independent researchers out there that, hey, look, you know, if you're interested in something and you just put your heart into it, you can do it without these big companies, without big budgets. But it can't be easy. So I've seen the crowdfunders go out. I've seen the, the, the great teasers and little gifts that come with it. But I mean, how involved are you guys with that? I see the all-nighters you do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does it work? You know, how do you set this thing up and then suddenly realize halfway through, oh, we don't have a mon- enough money yet. How can we do another push? How can we get another budget to get that? that, that? How does how does it happen? Yeah, it, it's uh, it is an, an fascinating process, really. And I think the one thing above everything else, the key to to all of it, is that you know everyone that Seth. Breedlove has been able to kind of assemble around his vision uh, just kind of inherently believes in what we're doing. Hmm. It, it sees that there's a value to it and has a, a role that they can play that they enjoy doing um, just intrinsically. But um, you know, I think the thrust of the question is, is really you know how, how do you do it and that's that's the uh, that too is is um to to have the time to just reflect on the process it, it's rather stunning to see what we've been able to do and i had that opportunity myself in writing uh the book that's coming out a, a bit later this year that was a, a kickstarter kind of exclusive reward but the point of the book was just to go back and bring people in sort of the behind the scenes process for everything that we've done this is so far. Monsters. Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that was, it was a monumental undertaking because we tend not to look back. Mm-hmm. There's just this, this continual forward movement in charting what project is going to be next and moving on to that. But where I was going with that response is the the absolute key is that, you know, it starts at the top and it starts with Seth and Seth sets the example in finishing, you know, filming, gathering everything that's needed to actually put a film together and then being done by deadline. And I think that, as simple as that sounds, I mean, that's one of the great takeaways and one of the things that I've learned just by observing him is that in any field of endeavor and cryptozoology and the unexplained is no different. As you said, you see lots of great teaser trailers. 
mm-hmm. and people float all sorts of neat ideas that would mm-hmm. probably result in a compelling project and they just don't happen. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Funding is one, certainly. But I think even greater than that is just the desire to actually do it. finish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and Seth is good at finishing. And that's that's something that I learned just by being around him is mm-hmm. in the case of the book. I mean, at, at a certain point, I just sort of said, look, you have to give me a hard deadline so that I know it just needs to be done by then. And that worked in that case. Mm-hmm. So it's it's almost all the way through the um, pre-production process at this point. My writing is certainly done. But I think that's, as I said, what, and I guess the proof is in the amount of product that's out there now is yes. just that um, the goals are set and and we hit them and Seth makes sure that we hit them in part because this is for now how he's paying for everything in his life. That's how his family has shelter and food and, and yeah. everything it, so that there's some, some motivation to it like that as well. I mean, he wanted to make a career of it and he is, he's doing that, mm-hmm. but, um, kind of the the shifting landscape of platforms that are available for independent producers has made that more difficult and um of course one one very large platform that i'm thinking of is amazon uh-huh. uh, they've continued to apply a uh, law of diminishing returns to creators so that yeah yeah um so that you know, uh, I, the last figure that I saw Seth use was something like, um, oh, when, for example, when Mothman of Point Pleasant came out, uh-huh. that was at the time the most widely viewed small town monsters project there was by far. And the next year, Amazon cut the percentage of what small town monsters received per view by basically 60 percent wow so that that changed the game somewhat I mean, that's and really really huge yeah it is and, and why and, did they did they give explanation for the reason why well um uh, independent movies i guess yeah i mean partially i i believe from their angle it had something to do with limiting the number of independent companies that would try i think there was a glut and people just almost essentially putting their home movies on amazon prime uh for so it's almost as if they were trying to weed out who was really serious and who wasn't um and and beyond that i mean i don't that's as much as i know about the business end of it per se but what what that meant is that when this initial decision came through the uh, the future of small town monsters was very uncertain because mm-hmm. the model wasn't built on the new numbers uh, the model was built on the old and so that meant diversifying where projects were going to be seen and so forth and we were quite fortunate in that on the trail of bigfoot uh, the it appeared in two installments on amazon and 
episodically on Blu-ray and so forth or DVD. And that did very well for us. It's not, it's probably not overstating it to say that on the trail of Bigfoot one kept small town monsters going. Wow. Um, So, you know, now we're, we're, it's gotten to a point where uh, we're, we're talking to, and, and Seth signed a deal with the actual distributor to get things out on a, a wider variety of platforms and um, other other ideas have been floated here and there, but uh, for the most part, what what Seth wants, and I I couldn't agree more, is to just maintain as much control as possible over yeah. the properties for the sake of being able to to say exactly what we want to say and not end up you know uh, making, clearly making a point, type of show that's already that's out there. what's been attractive to people is that it's not your standard you know, animal planet travel channel documentary yeah that they give to you um mm-hmm. which follows the standard format throughout as right. cheap as you like mm-hmm. and um uh, with that same sort of you know calling in the dog kind of format I, yeah. I really love the format of the Small Town Monsters um, documentaries. But what I love about it most is it, it features so many different cryptozoological researchers. Mm-hmm. That it, it, it goes to the source. I, I saw that you had obviously Paul Bartholomew and so many other people in there. I thought the one with Cliff and Bobo, obviously. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's, um, which was Momo. That was Momo, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And um, it was very monster. And it's just great. It's great for people to see it from an indie perspective because that's where you get the real feel um i heard one or two people chattering i also saw a few comments about oh these guys have sold it now they've sold out they're not indie anymore i thought that was really uh, there's something weirdly psychological there's a weird psychological need in communities that love what you do from a, um, a grassroots base that they don't want you to become successful for them because they like how you are when you're just theirs, right? Mm-hmm. It's an odd philosophy for the company to keep going, keep growing. It has to be successful. But for these grassroots lovers to keep liking you, you have to be kind of poor and scrabbling around <laughs> yeah, to make sure. the stuff that they like. Isn't that a very strange it's a sort of psychological viewpoint for the people you love? You don't want them to, to be successful because they mm-hmm. won't be just yours anymore. Right. I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you face these people and say, well, no, we're not selling out. We're just getting enough money to give you more product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Seth and I have talked about this yeah. a lot as of late, and we've had opportunity to do so uh, because we've been together on the uh, Bigfoot 2 shoot. Mm-hmm. So this came up more than once. And it, it just... On one hand, it, there is a lot of humor to it because, you know, in order to be a sellout, somebody has to be buying. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, that, that's, there's a missing piece there because yeah, the buying we're, bit. Yeah, <laughs> you have to sell out to someone and there, there is no one that is currently in that position of uh, us coming to and, and them yeah handing us fistfuls of cash to go out and use. I mean, truly everything that goes into these films is crowdfunded 
or a result of uh, purchases of the films themselves or the attendant merchandise, and it's just cyclical. I think perhaps one thing that we theorized is that maybe what people are seeing is an improvement in quality of the images. Um, Certainly, I mean, it's as a matter of course, our... our, um, the uh, the technology has improved in five years. You know we've gone from not literally, but almost close to a, you know a portable videotape recorder to uh, you know something that could conceivably be used in a almost Hollywood presentation. And and we don't own those big ticket items. We have to rent them for each shoot. But that's partially what we're kickstarting mm-hmm. in order to do is to improve the quality of just the visuals and being choosy about who we work with in terms of the um, illustrations mm-hmm. and Sam. Yeah, right. Sam Sheeran, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And fellow countryman. Yes. Awesome artist. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it, it's things like that, that we, at the end of the day, we just end up scratching our heads and saying, you know, um, the, the sellout angle is interesting because um, it's certainly not based in a, any sort of deal where we are becoming suddenly wealthier, successful in worldly terms. I mean, we consider honestly and very candidly, we consider success in terms of being able to continue making yeah. these films that's it there <laughs> you know if people would be if, very surprised though mark to know just how hard it is to make ends meet in this in this genre it if you were not in it for passion you just would mm-hmm. not be in it really right. uh, in regards to what you're saying a phrase keeps coming to my mind uh, it's sort of an uh, 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 a melded phrase which is you know small time says we sold out and all we got were these crappy t-shirts right <laughs> in a sense not that that crappy but you know that that was the reward for the mm-hmm. sellout there is no money and it just it's just about as you said working very 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 hard and hopefully continuing to do good things and and perhaps paying your bills along the way yeah right so right. um but I, I think it's excellent. I'm looking forward to all of the new documentaries. I'm always astounded, but also very, very encouraged by the production rate. You know, I think it's just amazing. It should be nothing but encouraging to other people out there. Now, what I do really want to talk about, and I've got two young girls, you've got children, is your relationship with your son with the Monsterland blog yes. and pod. And I was looking through some of the... Uh, pictures of all the, the sort of the Godzilla guys and um, yes. obviously big into sci-fi as well. I just love this aspect. You know, I had this a little bit uh, from a family perspective with my dad with the In Search of series and Arthur C. Clarke series. That's things we used to watch religiously together. And again, as a child of the 70s, there was this big glut of unknown and mysterious magazines out. I mean, there were just so many things that have disappeared. I can't even remember what they mm-hmm. are. But I loved looking at this this podcast with you guys. I love to see that he's often in the movies. You know, he he's there. He's involved. Your son. Um, how does that work with you guys? Is this just something that you've kind of coaxed him into over time, or you've shared it and he's shared your interest? 
how does it come about is it sure. is it a product of dad or is it something he loves in his own right yeah it well it did clearly i think it started you know you, you have sort of this um not not in the pejorative sense that people use us today but as a parent you're sort of a gatekeeper in terms of what comes in what doesn't and very early on you know this godzilla and ultraman and um you know all all of these Japanese special effects type films and and American ones as well and 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 British productions for that matter uh, Hammer and oh yeah um, you know all uh, giant behemoth and just some great stuff uh, that's there seemed like something that you know on one hand they're exciting and they're fun and uh, dynamic but they're also paradoxically they're safe you know they never go too far um in any regard that a, a parent would be sensitive to and so that was sort of the steady diet from the time um he was old enough to to make choices and so forth about what he wanted to watch um at a certain point when he was around i want to say seven eight years old uh, we started to investigate um, being part of uh, an annual convention in Chicago called G-Fest, which you probably wow. saw references to on the blog. Yes. And that's a fan-led, fan-directed, um, in conjunction with G-Fan magazine, which is a, a Godzilla uh, fanzine that's been around for quite some time at this point, uh, just bringing people together to watch the films on a large screen in an actual theater and bringing in guests from who were involved in the production of these films um, a few at a time every year. And it, we went to our first one and, um, you know, a prop would have gone to our 12th or 13th consecutive G-Fest this summer were it not for the coronavirus. Um, putting the kibosh on all those plans mm. but uh it, it became a, a truly in the first couple of years you're just agog at the films on the large screen and people screaming and clapping when godzilla makes his first appearance on the screen and then there's the dealer's room where there's just wall-to-wall -wall figures and posters and mm. And then at some point it shifts into uh, becoming more of a family reunion, you know, right. where you get to where people come back year after year and you really become a part of these people's lives. And the folks at G-Fest saw Andy go from age six, seven up through his high school career. And now he's 17 years old wow. and, you know, getting ready to drive a car on his own and things of that right. nature. So through all of that, the interesting thing has been. Um, you know, you, you, a fandom like that, one of the strengths of it is that there are numerous ways that you can intersect with it mm -hmm. and to sort of apply this to small town monsters. Then, uh, you know, it was, we started recording the podcast that was the same time that I had started in a partnership with Seth recording Sasswat. Mm -hmm. a podcast about Bigfoot. And so we were recording Monsterland, Ohio at essentially the same time. And one thing led to another to where in 2016, 
uh, Seth invited both Andy and me to participate in the filming of Boggy Creek Monster down in Falk, Arkansas, which of course has connections to the film The Legend of Boggy Creek, which was a very important film for I me remember the film. growing yeah. up. Um, and what ended up happening on that trip is really without any prompting and sort of, you could almost say in uh, meant-to-be fashion, Andy started helping with the production. And at first it was just helping to set up lighting, carrying equipment from the van to the place where interviews were going to be conducted and just making himself useful in that way. And fast forward to uh, earlier this month, you know, we were in the Adirondacks filming um, on the trail of Bigfoot too. And he's my son, Andy's one of the cinematographers. So it's, right. it, it just sort of takes this um, natural progression to where, you know, our, the amount of time that we spend watching some of these films and programs, that's ebbed and flowed, you know, in a natural sort of way as he's grown. But his connection into uh, STM in particular has simply just changed to the degree now that I think uh, videography and uh, even cinema perhaps is something that he's seriously considering pursuing. Um, and it's, it's, so it's become extremely, it, it's gone literally from a hobby to a, a, you know, a potential path for his life. So that's been as a parent so very rewarding. Yes. So encouraging to see your child become a photographer, a cameraman on the job, mm -hmm. on the job, um, that kind of thing. I love it. I love the whole grassroots thing. I love that whole idea about it, but especially seeing snippets, uh, which I do occasionally on your timeline or things pop up, you guys doing things. It just reminds me now with my daughters, one is seven, one is four. And we have an animal shelf that's full of figurines and they've chosen them in shops or on the internet over time. Or if I bring anything back from a conference, they, they, um, they, uh, that's theirs basically. <laughs> they take it mm -hmm. away from me. They don't <laughs> mind anymore. So I had, um, I had one of, uh, Jean St. Jean's, um, Bigfoots from Creature Replica yeah. and they've taken that and, uh, Mammoth and um, a little silicon from Lawrence Museum, and they've got that and a bunch of other stuff, along with all of their animals and their Barbies and everything else. So a typical scene on the shelf would be, you know, <laughs> Bigfoot riding a mammoth, and uh, Barbie's asking why they can't get married, and it's because he says, "But we're not the same species, and you can't marry somebody that's not the same species." Um, and it just goes on like this. All these different yeah. characters get involved over time because they're little girls that love playing with cryptids, animals, and girly dolls at the same time. And it's just mm -hmm. a funny, it's just a funny matchup, really. But I love it. Like, that's their world. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and I can see that I'm responsible for some of that, of course. Sure. Oh, Although yeah. it's been their choice all, mm -hmm. all along. We watched Harry and the Hendersons for the first time. I thought they were old enough. And it's got a few scenes that might scare, you know, a seven or four year old. And, it, and at the end of it, I said, so what did you think yours? You know, what, what would you feel if you met Harry? Would you be frightened? And the oldest one said, you know what? 
No, I think I would give him a hug. Oh, there you go. Well, that's great. But I also thought, well, if we do get out in the woods and we see one, please don't give it a hug. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Should that ever happen, please stay away. Yes. But yes, I mean, it's nice. It's a nice thing to do with your children. my, I suppose my, my question to you is that the book is it, the book is out making monsters or it's coming out. It's coming out, okay. and it's the initial run is going to ship to those who back the Kickstarter at the appropriate level, uh-huh. and that's it as far as the run is concerned. If we get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people saying we didn't back the Kickstarter, but we want we'd like a book, yeah. then I I, I I assume that there might be some plans in place to, you know, to do that. But really, it was it was originally meant as uh, just something special for this particular Kickstarter, and uh-huh. truly to celebrate the fact that we have made it for five years, yeah, and are still doing the type of things that we enjoy doing. But you know, as I alluded to before, what I found most fascinating was just to sit still and look back and really be kind of, well, thankful, of course, but also just amazed at the ground that we'd covered in five years, just in terms of the the number of projects and where we had been. And it, it became kind of ridiculous to think, you know, it, going to Bray Road, for example, you know, it seems like eons ago and it was only a couple of years ago. And and uh, just having that sensation, I think um, all of us on the crew really needed to to take that pause and and look at what we had done and and really celebrate it a little bit because that's typically not the mode that we're in. It's almost always on to the next thing. Mm. So uh, you know, I just very recently, like within this past week, got to see the digital file of the text with the pictures that Seth's wife, Adrian has selected for the design. And, you know, I, I'm really ecstatic with how it's turned out. And I think people are going to, who, who like the films uh, will really enjoy it because it's, uh, it, it, my whole, my approach in, in writing it was to try and just, communicate what it was like (laughs) to be on these shoots and uh, sort of how rapidly things move and it it was just it was a lot of fun and at the same time it it was a major wish fulfillment for me to be able to say um, I wrote a book about cryptozoology in a, a roundabout sort of way I mean it was about documenting the the cryptozoological and the unexplained but you know, then. Uh, well, I, I I think that essentially is a book about cryptozoology, yeah. um, probably containing as much evidence as we have ourselves. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, uh, Seth and I have been talking a lot lately as well about things coming full circle, and we've we've seen some of those. I don't, I won't bore you with all the connections, but for me, that hit home when. I got an email a month or two ago at this point from Lauren Coleman, just sort of a, hey, Mark, I know that the book's coming out this year. Please make sure I end up with a copy of it 
so that I can review it for my list because he has the end of the year I know, book yeah, list. Yeah. And that to me, I mean, I'm a the fact that Lauren Coleman emails me at all is staggering uh, because you know I I just have extremely clear recollections of being in fourth, fifth, sixth grade and going to my local library and checking out Mysterious America yet again and reading it from cover to cover. And that was one of the most important books and still is in many ways. Uh, uh, but, but in terms of introducing me to the the spectrum of un, unusual and unexplained topics. So to to go from that and being that young man to someone who will be submitting a book that I wrote for his review in full circle. It just, I, I mean, would never have predicted that as a reality. It just doesn't register. Isn't that something. funny that I, I, I wonder, <clears throat> I often wonder about people like Lauren or um, one of my favorites, Dr. Carl Schuka. Mm-hmm. Now I, I speak, he's a zoologist, he's a cryptozoologist, he's written 33 books on every cryptid you can imagine but also every minor and little or unknown cryptid you could possibly imagine mm-hmm. and if i ever chat to him i have to remind myself and the same thing with lauren not to to turn into a fanboy yes to just have a nice little <laughs> chat and say oh yes and how are you and that's really great and don't don't sign off with a kiss or a heart or an i love you because <laughs> <laughs> it won't look good right. not coming from a 44 year old man anyway <laughs> Um, and I just, yeah, I always wonder to myself, at what point did Lauren, you know, meet Hoovermans or one of those guys, Sanderson, and say, oh, this guy really liked my book, and uh, he's Ivan T. Sanderson, he's Bernard Hoovermans, you know, to be like him one day, would it ever happen? And mm-hmm. he is the modern day Hoovermans. You know, the only one going, really. Sure. You know, uh, that uh, lineage and that, that length of uh, service, six decades, mm-hmm. it's a long mm-hmm. time, uh, with more books than you, you possibly know. I think there are, are there 40 books, something like that, 40, right. 42 books. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's a legacy of service to the field of cryptozoology, which, as we know, is rarely, um, it's rarely thankful in the terms of financial remuneration. So... Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, the, he's got to love it. Sure, he has. I, I will. I would love to to see that book and and grab a hold of a, a copy at some point, which I will happily um, donate to the next project to perhaps uh, mm-hmm. as my part. And just as a finisher, you know, the new projects going on at the moment on the trail of Bigfoot is is there a Kickstarter? Has it happened? Has it finished? It, what's new in the pipeline for sure. small town monsters? Yeah, the, the project's coming up is the On the Trail of Bigfoot 2, as you uh, noted, and most of the the principal filming of that is done. Mm-hmm. Uh, that And the, the vast majority of the locations involved with that is upstate New York in the Adir- Adirondack Mountains, and then we took a brief trip down to western Massachusetts, which I don't think is... You know, until you're there and it's boots on the ground, uh, it wouldn't necessarily strike you as a, a, a Bigfoot hotspot, but uh, there's all of the, the ingredients that you need are, are definitely present there in Western Mass, and we had great 
guides in that area. So that comes out in finished form in March of next year. Mm-hmm. Um, the next project to be filmed, if the schedule holds true, would be um, the Mark of the Bell Witch. Uh-huh. And and that is, of course, um, based on uh, stories and folklore from uh, Kentucky or Tennessee. I always get that mixed up a little bit in my mind. But I can't help you there. Middle America, for at the very least. And um, then we have Mothman Legacy, which is essentially complete at this point um in the next couple of weeks it will be locked and sent off for mastering and distribution and all those sort of things and that that one will be released around halloween of this year oh wow and um that that one i were what i'll say about that is you know there's a lot of leeway within the, the crew to speak one's mind <laughs> and uh you know i played it a little close to the best at first but as we got into the mothman legacy project i told seth you know how necessary is this story because you know we've mothman at point pleasant was very specific and told the the story in of the 1960s you know 66 and 67 you know, what else is there to say? And in the process of editing the script and watching rough cut after rough cut and giving suggestions, I can say quite candidly that it is a necessary film because it it goes far more into the uh, life and career of John Keel, who Mm -hmm. wrote uh, the Mothman prophecies that basically broke the story of Mothman in an important way. Uh, Seth was also able to get an interview with Richard Haddam, who was the screenwriter of the Mothman Prophecies film mm-hmm. that came out two thousand and one, I think. And, and, yeah, in that, right there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, his story is fascinating, just in how he ended up adapting the book into a film fashion, and. Many his his ideas about um, Mothman and cryptids and the unexplained runs very parallel to small town monsters. So that was really rewarding to be able to hear his interview. It's kind of a centerpiece of the film. So that'll be that'll be exciting, and um, we're we're very hopeful that it gets some type of public release that people mm-hmm. can gather together again in a, a yeah, honest to guess. goodness movie yeah. theater and watch it uh-huh. uh, so a we'll see. theater <laughs> at the very least yes at the very least yeah. mask up and get close to each other you know it's fine mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> watch it yeah watch it <laughs> and then um on the trail of ufos is um going to receive a second installment as well uh-huh. and uh you know that one of of the four i'd say that's the one that has is the most fluid at this point in terms of what format it's mm. going to take um 
with these on the trail logs, we've so far taken a fairly episodic approach. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's always a question. That's always a live question is we, will we continue episodically or just make a, a one film or mm. two, you know, there, there's, it almost always works out that the, the material suggests itself, you know, how it should be arranged. So, um, the, sort of the pattern that we've settled into is a Kickstarter near the beginning of the year, typically in early February. So I don't, I don't know that there's a date set at this point, but certainly the first or second weekend in February of 2021, almost certainly there will be a new Kickstarter that will be you know, to fund the post-production of some of the projects that I mentioned and to um, perhaps secure new equipment, better equipment, uh, whatever, and then start charting a course for the future, whatever that, that looks like. And there's always spitballing going on about where do we go next and, and what do we do? And even just loose conversation, like it would be fun if we returned to this or that so you just it it it's sort of that that part of it is is great fun because you just things just sort of shake out sometimes and everything lines up and you find yourself in the adirondacks (laughs) i like that in late june yeah beautiful beautiful mountains being there Mm -hmm. and um i think it's it's a testament to the the fact that the kickstarters keep working time after time one because the product people can see the product is good and they get a good product in return two it's genuine it seems very genuine to me as a uh, an uncomfortably given british compliment you know we're not allowed to right so <laughs> it seems genuine and i think people pick up on that they say yeah this is something that they're not asking for my money they're they're giving me something for what for what i'm uh, giving and that to me, I think that's why it's been successful. Kickstarters can and can't work. And normally I don't think they work to this extent. I've not seen it anywhere else anyway. But there's something different and genuine about it that, that works. And um, I hope it keeps working because, you know, we want to keep seeing these yeah. great movies about our favorite cryptids and mysteries and, uh, and everything else that's out there and unexplained in the world. Um, just, just as a finisher for you, Mark Matsky, and I still hope I'm saying that right. No, it's um, perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. It's Polish. It actually, it's a Bavarian German, oh, believe wow. it or not. Okay. And, and long time ago, they probably would have said Matsky to be, yeah, okay. Okay. we, we Americanized it quite a bit, but changed that's, some that's vowels. Fine. <laughs> I'm Andy McGrath. But in mm-hmm. Ireland, they would never see McGrath. The TH is never pronounced. It's McGrath oh. every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I tell people in Britain that, well, I just won't get my name spelled. Right. So <laughs> it's McGrath. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Esmond, as to uh, finishing off, where can people, apart from small town monsters, where can they just find you if they want? Uh, well, Pastor Mark is for your church, I take it, but if they want yes. to, to read about you and your, your, your Monsterland uh, or Monstropolis podcast, where, where can they go to find it? Oh, sure. Well, um, yeah, Monsteropolis is uh, hosted on Podbean, oh. uh, the Podbean site. 
but we're on all the major um, iTunes or, or yeah, uh, iTunes podcasts, um, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, all those places. Uh, my I'm on Twitter, just me myself at uh, Reverend Matsky, uh-huh. and Matsky Mark is my Instagram, and it's so funny because it's just always an amalgam of church stuff and Bigfoot and okay. <laughs> it just it's you know but why not why no, not exactly yeah. I mean it, it's just there's there's really yeah no plan to it it just whatever is happening on a given day but and and Monsterland Ohio is still live uh, uh-huh. not all of the episodes are still available I saw that because of yeah. storage reasons but eight eight episodes the, of that yeah the best of the best are still out there living perpetually and the blog still exists as monsterlandohio.blogspot.com I haven't added anything to it in a long long time and that's just a that's a reflection of of time constraints uh, well, more than I've had a else. good look through it, uh, and I would suggest everybody does check it out. Listen to those eight episodes because they're great. Yeah. And uh, you know, father son wants the fun. It doesn't yeah. get much better than that, really. It's, yeah, Mark, thank you so much for coming on and and spilling the beans, telling me everything there is to know about the 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 life of the Matskis and the small town monsters crew. It's, it's been wonderful. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you.